From WHRV Norfolk, this is Watching America. South of the border, down Mexico way. That's where I fell in love when the stars above came out to play. And now as I wander, my thoughts ever stray. South of the border, down Mexico way. In the minds of some Americans, south of the border, there lies a land of enchantment and possible peril. For it's not all a matter of tourist sombreros and margaritas, but potentially, when off the beaten path, a matter of corrupt law officials and drug cartels. Few Americans venture by themselves away from pedestrian safety, but author Paul Thuru has done just that. Paul Thuru is a name known to both lovers of fiction and non-fiction. Since the publishing of his first novel, Waldo, in 1967, he has written nearly 50 books, the latest of which is a non-fiction work entitled On the Plain of Snakes, A Mexican Journey. In this work, he travelled on the southern national border and was struck by the complexity of both the social and political ramifications of two huge neighbours, with contrasting needs. It is my great pleasure to welcome to Watching America, Mr. Paul Theroux. Welcome, sir. Uh, it's a pleasure to be here. I, I almost felt I should have started by saying a mulibunji. Well, it's bulibunji. Oh, bulibunji, okay. <laughs> <laughs> it's bulibunji. Bulibunji do remember. Yes. I, I lived there for two years. You lived there for two years. Well, I can't claim that, but I can claim having been in Malawi and uh, and also working with the Tuchawan tribe and um, in various locations. And as you know, when you arrive there, um, and you were there much earlier than I was, but uh, Lilongwe has one one runway. And the people are extremely warm, and we are walking really on the territory that Dr. David Livingston walked on when, when one is there. Can I just share one memory, and then we can hear your memories, which I want to hear before we get into Mexico. Sure. I was really touched. Um, I was uh, lecturing with a group of students, and it was in an old British school. As you know, um, Malawi achieved its independence in July 6th of uh, 1964. So I'm in this dilapidated building uh, lecturing, and there is no chalkboard that is really sufficiently able to be used. It has dust on it, however, so I improvised on the moment, and I remember sticking my index finger on my tongue, and in the dust I began to illustrate what I needed to on this makeshift board of a sort, when suddenly there was a young man who stood up, bolted, and ran out. And I looked to the interpreter and as if to say, have I done something wrong? And he just gave me a look of, I don't know. About 70, perhaps 80 minutes later, this young man came back, perspiring from head to foot. And he walked up and very proudly handed me a singular small piece of chalk. I wanted to cry. I didn't want to use the chalk, I might tell you, because I wanted to keep it as a souvenir. But I, I knew under the social circumstances that I had no alternative but to use it. Had I had the opportunity, I would have brought it back to America and encased it in glass and used it as an example of the importance of, of education. But I found the warmth of the people 
incredible. And I'm just curious, as you went as a young man with the Peace Corps and indeed were there for uh, a much longer period of me than me, two years, what was your experience like? My experience was wonderful. I was there uh, when the British, I, I went there uh, when it was still Niasaland. Mm. I, I got there in December 1963. Uh, so I had seven months of British rule. Uh, it was the territory of Rhodesia and Niasaland. Yes. And um, all my students were barefoot. Uh, I, I was teaching in the bush in the south, southern region in, uh, near Sochi Hill. I, I had learned the language because um, I was in the Peace Corps. We learned the language, and we, we spoke it pretty well. And because I was in a remote place, I spoke the language all the time. And, I mean, it, ultimately, I stayed in Africa for six years. But I think I should say that I was in Malawi when it was at its most optimistic, its happiest, mm. uh, its most forward-looking in, in years of great promise which then began to diminish. I mean, you talk about a piece of chalk being so important. Uh, the Malawi government has stolen, wasted, and squandered hundreds of billions of dollars of donor money. So the idea that the schools are so deprived of books, desks, mm. and material is, is not reflected in the, uh, at all by the government, which, um, you know, it, it terribly has, has robbed the people. It's uh, And so... Malawians, who, are, as you say, are the warmest, friendliest, hardworking people, uh, can only find work or money by traveling. They're the great travelers of Central Africa. They're known in Zambia, Zimbabwe, and South Africa as hard workers and, you know, people who will go and do whatever you want them to do. They, they worked in the mines in South Africa during the apartheid regime. But I, I lived there at a very, very optimistic period. I would say the golden age of politics and, and, and uh, independence in Africa. I went to Uganda after that. It was also a wonderful experience, but um, that's no longer the case. I mean, you, people go there. I'm sure that if you said in your classroom, well, students, what would you like to do with your lives? They'd raise their hand and say, uh, Dr. Campbell, uh, I'd like to leave. I want to go to your country. I yes. want to have uh, where this opportunity. I, uh, please get me out of here. That wasn't the case. When I was there, I, if I had said the question, they'd said, they would say, I want to be a dentist, I want to be a doctor, um, I want to be part of the process. They have a medical school there, um, and all the doctors leave. They get, they're educated, and they end up in Australia, England, United States, and so forth. So it's, a, you know, it's the way of the world, but um, I feel as if I write about a world that has been changing ever since I began writing, and trying to, in my writing, trying to account for it, uh, notice it, uh, to chronicle the, the, the changes that I've known. Of, well, 63 was how long ago? I mean, that was 56 years ago. Yes. So for more, well over 50 years, I've been traveling in countries that are uh, uh, changing. For some time, you were a stringer for Time Life. And did that begin as early as your experience in Malawi, or did that come later? That was a bit later. The, uh, I lived in Malawi, as I said, from 63 to 65. The first thing I published was the Central African Examiner. It was uh, first a poem, and then I wrote pieces. For the Central African Examiner was published in Rhodesia, now Zimbabwe. Um, I became a time-life stringer in Uganda, but just, I was just sort of a fixer. I wrote, you know, they'd have a story, and, uh, an African story, and I would interview people or um, uh, add the detail to it. I was also, you know, when there was trouble in the Congo, because I was in Uganda, I used to uh, occasionally help people get 
flights, you know, get a small plane into Bukavu mm-hmm. or in, into the uh, eastern Congo, uh, place of uh, Goma and Bunia. Up, um, there was always trouble. There were there were mercenary white mercenaries, and in '65, um, uh, Che Guevara was actually trying to liberate Katanga. So. Uh, there was there was always something to write about, and no one knew that it was Che Guevara, but but he was there. Well, let and me we let, let me ask you, if I may, about your writing because I'm intrigued by this. I'm in, intrigued by you as a person, not only your observations, but you as a writer. If we had spoken to your mum and dad, to Mister Thoreau and Missus Thoreau, would they have said, "Oh, the signs were there all along that our our little boy would grow up, be a world traveller, and record his observations"? Uh, no, they would. They would first, if uh, it gone way way back there, if, they, if they'd say, "So, what are your son doing? What's his ambition?" They would have said, "We want him to be a doctor. He says he wants to be a medical doctor." And if you had published, if you, if you had spoken to my mother uh, after my first book was published, she would say, "We're very ashamed of his writing. Uh, his books, of, his writing is very upsetting." I wrote a Paul a letter in which I said that his first novel was trash oh, and wow. I'd be ashamed to show it to anyone my my parents rarely read what I wrote and used to say how are you going to make a living what, what will you do who's going to read it who's going to publish it what are you going to do they found it um faintly embarrassing that I was out there publishing things and I didn't write I didn't become a writer to please my parents but in fact my parents were fairly discouraging about it they saw Real work was being a dentist, being a doctor, being a teacher, uh, working as a short order cook in a diner. That, that's work. That was work. Writing isn't work. Writing is just sitting around. You know, it's like D.H. Lawrence's uh, father said that about him. Said, you mean you get paid for doing this? You know, what, how, what makes no sense. Paul, I'd like to ask you, just uh, as an individual, I think of Johnny Carson uh, Johnny Carson never was affirmed for all of his great success by his mother at all. In fact, uh, those who were nearest and closest to him said that that, that was the great uh, hurt of his life, and it haunted everything he did. I don't want to get too personal, and if you don't want to respond to this, this is fine. We can move on. Or, or No, go right ahead. I, know, I think I know what's coming. How, like how are, you like these questions good. I like a person that likes these questions. <laughs> so I must ask you, how have you handled that uh, non-resolved lack of acknowledgement for your great talent by those nearest and dearest? It is fuel. It's fuel. It, 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 it motivates me. It gets my mojo going. Uh, uh, I wrote a novel, I published it two years ago, called Motherland, which is based on my family, based on my family being... Uh, hostile, envious, <laughs> uh, uh, denouncing my, my books and being generally un- unappreciative. Um, if my mother had said to me, I love this book. I think this is a wonderful book. I, I love what you're doing. I would have thought I'm doing something wrong. Because writing, you write from a position of strength, usually a disturbing vision. And I felt that I felt rebellious, and I would have felt if my mother had had embraced me and accepted it, I would have thought I was doing something wrong. I really do. I would have questioned what I was doing, and I would have thought, based on the books that my mother liked, why does she like this one? I, when 
when she said that she said but this is my first novel it's trash and she was she said to one of my brothers um i had published a book which later became a movie called half moon street mm. um Yes. Uh, who Michael Caine was in it. And, right. Um, Did you know? She, she said, when the book came out, Half Moon Street, she said to one of my siblings, Paul's writing porno again. <laughs> uh. <laughs> so, so, so the answer is, first, um, they would have, they, they, to be polite, because my parents yes. were very polite, they would have said, oh, we're very proud of him. But, I, but privately, they weren't. Um, and then, uh, as far as my feeling, I think in my heart, that if you want to make something of yourself, you want to really become the person you're meant to be, you leave home and you go far, far away. And you stay away. You stay away till you become the person that you're meant to be. It's called individuation by, uh, you know, a right, right. social psychologist. And uh, I, I did that. I went away. I First, I went away to college. That's four years. So I was 18 when I left, or 17 or 18. And then I was away for 10 years. I was uh, six years in Africa. I was three years in um, uh, in Singapore as a teacher at the University of Singapore. Then I went to England. I lived for 17 years in England. So uh, for years, I didn't have a telephone for about half that period, and there was no internet. So I was really out of touch. I I vanished. I disappeared, and I decided to just do what I wanted to do without anyone breathing down my neck or anyone telling me what to write. I so, want to ask you, if I may, about, about your mother again, because you've indicated that she at one point accused you of essentially being a pornographer of a sort for your writing. Was she uh, what people would call a very religious woman? Very religious. My mother was very pious. But I, I'm not alone in that, you know. Well, the reason I ask is because in Mosquito Coast, you have an intriguing character who's an evangelist, and there's this sparring, at least in the film version, that goes on between this evangelist and the Harrison Ford character. And listening to you, I just wondered if the voice of that ardent missionary uh, that you, you've created in Mosquito Coast was in any way perhaps related to your concept of your mother. Uh, my mother wasn't an, an, an evangelist. She, my mother was a very, a very pious, church-going Catholic. So was my father. Uh -huh, but they weren't, okay. they weren't proselytizers. They didn't go on missions. They didn't try to convert people. They were good people. They were pious people. When I, whenever I meet um, a pious. Buddhist in 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 Burma going to the uh, the temple or bringing mm -hmm. offerings or in Bali or Thailand. I always think of my father especially because my father had that piety. He wasn't the the, the evangelist in in the Mosquito Coast wasn't based on uh, my mother at all. But I want to say that one of the most common features you you would find in letters in people who write, particularly men who write, is the opposition of their parents. Mm. Uh, George Simon's mother hated his writing and much preferred his older brother who was a soldier. Simon wrote about it in, in, in a book called Letter to My Mother. Henry Miller's mother disliked his writing, really disliked his writing. Yes. Uh, yeah. Ernest Hemingway's uh, mother, when um, he published, uh, I guess it was The uh, uh, um, Sun Also Rises, she said, this is garbage, this is filth. It's filth, and he'd he'd never got over that. I mean, I mean, he hated his mother, uh, George Bernard Shaw's mother. Mm -hmm. uh, Lawrence's mother was okay; his father wasn't. But the idea of dis parental disapproval in the art is much stronger than than parental encouragement. Yes, because when you become a writer, what are you doing? I mean, you, they were asking 
sensible questions, which is, what are you going to write? Who's going to publish it? Who's going to read it? How are you going to make a living? Those are reasonable questions. From a bourgeois household, you would say, oh, you want to be a writer? Well, how will you go about that? No one in my family had ever written a book. So I was a kind of pioneer in that. I don't hold it against them. They, what, their reactions were perfectly natural. If they were, were totally behind me, I, I would have wondered what, what I was doing. But I felt, you know, I came through the 60s. I, I grew up, um, I became a man, let's say, in the 1960s. I graduated from college in 1963. They were turbulent, wonderful years of, I think, of, of mainly of rebellion and experimentation. They'll never come again, as far as I can tell. But uh, um, whenever someone tells me they're about my age, I said, well, we went through the same period. We heard the same music. Um, we rebelled against, probably rebelled against the same things, the war, politics, and whatever. So all those things make you a writer. But what makes you a writer most of all is the solitude that you have to create what you're meant to create without someone holding your hand. Now and then uh, I'm at a say a bookstore or a talk and a woman comes up to you and says, my son's very embarrassed to introduce you, but I want you, I, I would like you to, you to read my son's writing. It's happened to me a number of times. And I say, okay, I'll look, but I also think, here's this, this kid's mother is advancing his career as a writer. He'll never become a writer. Leave yeah. your mother, leave her, leave her behind. Jesus said that. Jesus said that. <laughs> leave your parents behind. Leave your mother and father follow me. But he said, you know, Go away. Separate yourself from your family, and you'll find salvation, enlightenment. Well, I believe that. Absolutely. There's this degree of we all are accountable for our own independence and decisions. Let me ask you a question regarding the style of writing that you do. Um, you came up in an era of on-the-road Jack Kerouac and, you know, travels with Charlie, John Steinbeck. And then there was more of a romanticism with Somerset Maugham and, and Graham Greene and Peter Fleming. What I am so impressed, amongst many things about you, Paul, is uh, your ardent decision to say, I am not going to talk about just hither-dither silly things, but I'm going to describe things as they are. And in that, you have said elsewhere that you, you almost see it as putting yourself unintentionally in the position of being a prophet, describing things as they are. Can you talk about that? Well, I think that um, V.S. Naipaul once said, if you accurately seize the present, you're able to foretell the future. Um, and I think part of that is seeing things as they are is not only liberating, but can be prophetic. Telling the truth about a place can be prophetic. Not how you wish it, would be, uh, wish it were, uh, not how it's portrayed by, you know, travel writers or vacationers and so forth, but as it actually is. I mean, that's how I feel about Malawi and many other countries I've, I've traveled in. I've upset a lot of people by, by writing about places as I see them as truthfully as I can. And they say, well, I was there and it wasn't like that. We had a lovely meal. And I say, I'm not writing about the meal. I'm writing about the whole, you know, the gestalt, the whole, the whole place. And I think that if there's any value in travel writing, and sometimes I wonder whether there's any at all, but the, I think there is some. It has a place that the Chronicle has a position in, in historical time. Mm. And that when people, you know, you move on uh, 10 years, 20 years, 30 years, in my case, 50 years for some countries, 
you see that the country doesn't exist anymore, that it, it has changed. And sometimes there's a, there's a prophetic element in um, what I've written, I suppose, providing it was truthfully. But my motto is, see things as they are, not as you want them to be. So is it fair to say, Paul, that you're more interested in the people in the kitchen than the meal that's served? Yeah, very much so. That's a good way of putting it. Not only the people in the kitchen, but the people in the kitchen where they live and what they eat and how much they're paid. Yeah, very much so. I mean, there's a there's a line in Shakespeare which, where he says that uh, the sins of uh, Lucilia says it, that if uh, played with gold, we tend to excuse people. We don't see their sins, but. People in rags. You see, you see the people as they are if they're in rags. So, yes. um, yeah, working people. I suppose you could say. Um, I've never been a great fan of luxury hotel or luxury. I never write about it. I mean, only maybe in a mocking way. But uh, I don't think there's much to see. Uh, I'm not an enemy of vacations, and, and I suppose comfort is to be desired. But there's nothing to write about. If 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 you're on a luxury cruise. Um, there's really not much to write about, except I had a nice time. Yes. If you're on a sinking ship, there's a lot to write about. This is Watching America on WHRV. We'll be right back after this break. This is Watching America with host Dr. Alan Campbell. If you're just joining us, you're listening to Watching America. I'm your host, Alan Campbell, and I am speaking with whom I believe to be one of the most interesting people in America, Paul Theroux. Uh, He has written nearly 50 books, his latest of which is On the Plane of Snakes, which is a a really chronology and observation series of events uh, on his Mexican journey along the border of the United States and going a little bit further inwards uh, or southern from that border because American tourists in particular like to stay very close to that border or to go to places like Cancun, etc. I'd like to talk about Arizona uh, and your experience in Nogales. Now, that's somewhere I was doing some relief work on both sides of the border. And I found it, I was there um, in the late 1990s, and I found it incredibly intriguing. By the way, are you aware, and you may or may not be, of Nogales' significance in cinema history? Well, I know they made a lot of films. At the time, um, in its heyday, it was uh, the haunt of a lot of Hollywood actors, and there was a place called The Cavern where they would meet. As far as making films there, no. Uh, Viva, Viva, Viva Zapata was made in Roma, Texas, right on the border of Ciudad Aleman. This I think you'll find very interesting because it fascinated me, and I did not, in fairness, expect you to know it at all because very few people know it. The film Oklahoma... You remember, remember, you know, with uh, oh, yep. what a beautiful morning, etc. Shirley Jones and the whole bit. It was shot in Nogales. It was never shot in Oklahoma, uh, much to the chagrin of, of Oklahomans, I might add, because they were extremely upset. They said, it's not in our home territory. It's about the establishing of our state, which understandably they were upset about. But was it was it shot in Nogales, Arizona, or Mexico? Nogales, Arizona. Oh, uh, yeah, because you know so, they're, 
And, and the, there's only 10 feet that separates. <laughs> right, that's right. But what they had to do is they had to import the corn because you remember it's supposed to be as high as an elephant's eye. So they imported the corn. But the reason they chose that is Nogales in 1954 looked like Oklahoma in 1907. And oh, yeah, so that that's where they sense. did it. So anyway, uh, my experience there, and I don't know if it was different for you, was at the time, and I've, I've, I've read your book, and it sounds as though things have changed a little bit. There was just a corrugated series of, of, of iron metal panelings going across. And periodically, there was holes that people were crawling through and, and walking through. Later on, there was a gate spinning uh, area that I remember. But it, it seemed um, a very effete, rather weak-looking fence at the time. What was it like when you were there? I was there um, a number of times. The first time I went there, the fence was made of um, very, very solid steel plates that had been part of um, the runway uh, in, in the, the first Gulf War. They, they, they made runways out of these big steel plates. And they were, they were big. They might have been 25 feet high and I don't know how my one maybe 15 feet wide. And the, the, the fence, the running fence, or the wall, as Trump calls it, was made of steel plates that you could not see through. And there was a little a door through it, a turnstile, actually. What year was that, may I ask? I'm just curious. First time, the very first time I saw it was in the early 2000s. Okay, and, uh, so that was uh, after me, yeah. Yeah, and then they, they removed the The next time I went, they had a, they had a fence. Uh, that was also 25 feet high, roughly, and but it was you could see through it. The uh, slats in the fence were about, um, I would say, I don't know, three or four inches wide, about three probably, and that would, but they were they were solid um, girder-like mm-hmm. uh, slats, and the, and the fence ran. If, if you were on a high point, you could see it running over the next series of hills. It actually ran for about, I think. Uh, seven or eight miles. Then it just stopped, and it became a very small fence. It's a, a, a fence in any country is symbolic. You don't, you know, you can climb over it, you can tunnel under it. It, it doesn't do any good. Even the Great Wall of China is, you know, was pretty hopeless as far as repelling invaders. People went around it, but um, uh, but it, it but but it it, it changed, and uh, a lot of the border is fenced uh, or walled off, and some of it is nothing. I mean, there are lo- there's lots of parts of the border where. It just looks like the most idyllic scene of a, a river flowing between two banks, and you could easily swim across or get a little boat across, and you know disappear into the into the grass. So, so it ranges from the most pastoral border to the most rigorously policed, militaristic-looking penitentiary uh, wall. I was struck by how, in your book. On the Plain of Snakes, you describe the border as being, in, in places, almost like uh, outside large artistic sculpture. Yeah, it has that look. We all know who Christo, the, uh, uh, he, I guess, what would you call it, the installation artist, right. uh, Christo and large his wife. Form. Yeah, you see, he puts up big big banners and big structures and, and uh, in the countryside. Well, the border has that look. The border, it, it, there's something about the fence that's very symmetrical and weirdly attractive and sculptural. And so you look at it, you could think, "God, this is amazing. This, this looks. It looks like some artist has designed this running fence." I think running fence was one of 
Christo's ideas. But uh, you look at it, you think in the middle of nowhere, uh, uh, up and down a hill, and it, so it has this uh, the curvature of a hill and the contour of the hill. You see this steel fence going on and on and on. I, I, you know, it's, there's there's a strange beauty about it. But then when you see Westminster, it's actually, it's the edge of the United States. It's, that, that's the, it's like, you know, keeping people out or keeping people in. It's, uh, it has a purpose, obviously, but it doesn't really serve the purpose because you can't build a, a, wall, a wall along the whole border. People live on both sides of the border, you know. Let me put your book in a historical context. Um, you were raised in, and brought up in Massachusetts, and you start from the Northeast, and you decide to take... Route 81 down, snaking its way across America diagonally uh, until you get to the border. Tell me, uh, under the the circumstances that you left, what you anticipated seeing versus perhaps what was different that you actually did encounter and see. All of that under the shadow of uh, Trump administration, controversy related to the wall. What was going through your mind when you first hit the start button on your car in New England and make your way south? The first thing is that, is that whenever you go anywhere, it's a big mistake to tell people that you're traveling. You say, um, I'm going to Germany, and they say, uh, I, uh, well, Germans get drunk and cause trouble. I'm going to Italy. They say, well, you know, it's not else, everything gets cracked up for you. I'm going to Africa. <laughs> you, might, you might catch a disease. You're going to Brazil. Uh, soccer hooligans are going to kill you. You're going to London. You know, same thing. So it's going to throw acid on you. Yeah. There's, there's, there's always someone to discourage you. So what were you asked what was going on in my mind? It was, it was to <laughs> dis- discourage the thoughts of people who were um, negative about the trip. I got very little encouragement. Uh, but uh, by by ignorant people, but by people who've been there. I talked to several people who had driven through Mexico, and although one of them was from Texas, a woman, um, she said, my heart was in my mouth, but but she was in a pickup truck with two dogs, and she went, took the trip, and and she was encouraging. And a couple of other people crossing the border mainly said, it's bureaucratic. You need insurance papers, you need a vehicle importation permit, you have to put a deposit down. So there's a lot of a lot of paperwork to do to get a car, your own car into Mexico. You bought what a used car, right? When you got down there, you, you yeah, chose... I bought a, I, yeah, I bought a car for the purpose, because I thought if someone if steals the car, which is always a possibility, or I crash the car, it can't be the nice car that I have it at home in Massachusetts. So I got a car... Not exactly a disposable car, but one that I was less attached to. But what was going through my mind was, of course, uh, the, the formalities of crossing a border, which is no matter where you go, crossing a border from one country to another is problematical. You have to show your passport. You have to fill out a form. If you've got a car with you, there's, there's quite a lot of hassle. It's almost a discouragement in, its, in itself to realize that, that you need all these papers. But I, that's the challenge, too. And because so what was running from my mind was all of this. Uh, I want to get to the border. I want to get across the border. I just wanted to do it. And then I kept meeting people who said, um, I wouldn't go there if I were you. It's dangerous. You know, and, so forth. and then I would say, well, have you been there? And they'd say, well, no, but I've been to the border, but I've heard stories. So I didn't want it secondhand. I wanted first, even if it was going to be bad, you know, especially if it's going to be bad, there's something to write about. That's the whole nature of taking a trip is you hope that something's going to happen 
first, that you're going to survive, but, but secondly, that, that um, you're going to be challenged in some way. Your, your ideas are going to be challenged, and you, you're going to meet people and, and make discoveries, because discoveries are the things that, that carry you forward. The more you discover, the more you're enlightened, the more you're carried forward the next day to find out something else. So that's the motivation. Are, are you an optimist, or are you just brave because you've spoken elsewhere many times about having teenagers holding weapons, firearms pointed at you. Most of us in America never experienced teenagers, hopefully, pointing firearms at us with threatening glances, uh, promising our near demise. But you've been in that circumstance many times. Did that yeah, no possibly... One, no, no one in the States has ever poked a gun at me, but, but in Malawi, I, yeah. in Malawi, I, I, I vividly remember uh, a young... He was probably... 16, 17 years old. He was on the border. He was, you know, an underpaid border patrol guy. It was at night. He was shouting at me. The window of my car was closed. He thought that I was hiding. And he not only had the gun pointed right in my face, he um, had his finger on the trigger. I was shot at in Kenya. The trip that I took, it's called Dark Star Safari, where I was shot at uh, by a shifter Somali, Somali bandit. In, uh, in the desert north of Masabit in northern Kenya. People say, I'm going to Kenya, see some animals and drink beer. Actually, Kenya can be a very dangerous place. So um, it didn't happen in Mexico. In New Guinea, I, I, I was chased by boys with rusty spears. <laughs> so, but, you know, it makes a good story, I guess you could say, and I, 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 I survived it. But in Mexico, um, you, oh, you said, what's my mood? Am I an optimist? I'm hopeful. I'm, I'm, I tend not to be. I'm an optimist in action, but a pessimist in thought. So I, you know, I'll, I, I think I'm going to, I'll try this. And my, the other voice in my head is saying it might not work. But, um, you know, I, I, I try to be realistic about the risks involved. As you have said yourself, the cartels along the border are a $100 million business. How are you able to arrest fears on the way down, even though you've spoken to people who've been there before, the Texas lady says it's okay. But still, even if you just go with modern fiction, television, movies and what have you, you know that you are potentially dealing with some nefarious bad people. I mean, uh, just, you know, El Chapo, who, you know, is a, is a quizzical character because some Mexicans seem to have some kind of awkward pride in him. On the other hand, he's representational of great fear. How did you wrestle with that? Uh, well, it's, it's obviously it's, it's a problem. And by the way, it, it's not a hundred million; it's a hundred billion. A hundred. The, the drug business, the cartels are in a hundred billion dollar business. It's the most profitable business. You know, it's it's very. In the Godfather, a man says, "We're bigger than U.S. Steel." Talking about the uh, the mafia. Well, the. Uh, the cartel, the, the drug business and trafficking in Mexico is much bigger than the mafia or, or U.S. Steel. There's two, there's two problems that, that you have. One is that, that I didn't know of all the mayhem. I left, you know, it was kind of uh, uh, fool's rush in because I didn't realize that going from McAllen, Texas to Reynosa, that Reynosa was in dispute in a turf war. They call it plazas. The turf, and that that two or three cartels were vying for domination of the business to get drugs across, uh, migrants across, just to have a, a share of the business, and they were fighting. 
And so when I told people in Mexico, they said, how did you come? I said, well, I drove from Texas and crossed at Reynosa. They, I got a lot of points. They said, oh, man, you did that? That's, that's amazing. What was it like? Well, actually, what was it like was I, I drove through Reynosa. There were a lot of police by the side of the road. There were roadblocks. But what I remember were butterflies. There were just butterflies all over my car. And I was driving in the sunshine thinking, I thought I'm you were going to say there were butterflies in your stomach. <laughs> I didn't have any. <laughs> okay. I, I thought, because I didn't know. I didn't know. Um, it can be very dangerous. Yesterday or the day before, there were a number of, I mean, very serious killings in, in a place called Uruapan and in and, and Veracruz. So the mayhem, uh, the bloodshed, is as as common as it's ever been. But you would also say, you know, I often think, why does a why does a cartel, why does a gang member want me? What will they do with me? Uh, take my money? Well, you can have my money. But they take my car? Take the car. Uh, are they, why would they kill me? I mean, there's no no earthly reason for them to kill me except in crossfire. The people that they're looking for are migrants. They want migrants to take drugs across for them or to work for them. They they use them as slave labor. So they kidnap migrants, they traffic them, the women, into prostitution over the border, and they they put others on farms, and if they refuse, they kill them. Um, Would it happen to me? Uh, Yes, there's a possibility, but, I mean, you just hope that it's not going to happen. I I drove around Mexico for almost two years, up and down the border, and, and from the border down into Chiapas, which is in the deep south of Mexico, and the only problem I had were with the police. The police, just the police stopping me. They see my license plate. It says Massachusetts, Spirit of America. And they say, you're a gringo. Uh, you must have some money on you. I want some of it. And mm. if you don't give me the money, I'm going to put your car, I'm going to impound your car. Uh, and they say, you know, sabes lo que puedo hacerte? Do you know what I can do to you? And I say, yeah, you know, you've got the gun. Uh, what is it you want? And then they say, $200, $300, and you can argue with them, but you'll probably lose the argument, and so you pay the money. Well, that reminds me of Malawi, for instance, where people just arbitrarily come up to you and say, some legal official or some type of policeman would say, you've committed an infraction, and if you pursue to find out what that infraction is, you can't get a clear answer, but you've committed an infraction, so you know what that means. Yeah. When traveling down there, I mean, there are Two things I'm, I'm hearing from you. One is uh, ignorance is bliss, so to speak, uh, that you were were not hampered by overwhelming dread or fear. Um, your sense of ex- of adventure is clearly um, part of a cardinal aspect to your personality, which is great. At the same time, you're not unaware of potential danger because you've you've as you've attested to lived through it before. Um, you're running into dodgy police and law officials and what have you. Just on the practical side, did you take a, a few rolls of $1,000 bills to pay off supposedly offended individuals to be able to make your way? How does one do that logistically? I did exactly that. I had an envelope with $2,000 in it. And uh, the bribes that I needed to pay were 250 300 180 another 200 um, and I just said, the first time it happened, I argued, uh, and the men became furious. Um, oh and then I realized that yeah. I, I have to buy my way out of this. But to, to portray Mexico as a country of extortionists is wrong. Uh, when I was traveling through Texas, I was in a place called Falfurias, Texas. 
And the man stopped me and he said, you were speeding. I said, really? He said, yeah, you were doing 70. I said, I wasn't doing 70. Uh, this is a back road. He said, well, you can contest this. I said, I wasn't doing 70. And he didn't have a radar gun. Yes. He was just an old guy with a mustache on a back road. <laughs> and he stopped me. And that cost me $234. And so it can happen anywhere. Right. I mean, yes. human uh, nature is human nature. It, yes. it, it's happened to me on Cape Cod, Massachusetts. The man said, uh, you're stealing, and then, and then began screaming at me. I, and, and I made the mistake of saying, by the way, you know, this isn't China. Why are you yelling at me? And that made him even more angry. So the police, you know, I haven't had a lot of luck with the police, but I understand that they have a job to do. Mexico was a place shines in, in my memory as one of the happiest countries I've ever been in, a place where I made friends. And leave the police out of it for the moment. Um, everyone I met was helpful, and I found that it earned the respect of people, my students, because I was a teacher for a while there. Um, all people that I'd met on the way, once I'd kind of earned their respect, I had a friend for life. I mean, I still have them, and I've been back to Mexico three times since I finished the book. You described at one point uh, a very interesting encounter. You took a wrong road, you got lost, a bad storm was coming, and you found under a tree, I think it was two women or three women. Three women, yeah. You read the book. I'm glad. I Alan read them. Read. I read my books. <laughs> yeah. I'm not, I'm not just... That's, that's, that's further down. That's yeah. not in the first chapter. That's, yeah, it was in Oaxaca. Um, there was a roadblock. Uh, the teachers had a strike. They blocked a road. There was 10 miles of traffic, stopped traffic. So man said, take the side road. I took the side road, and it, the, it was, the weather was turning bad. My car was bumping. You know how you're on a bad road. Every time the, 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 a shock hits the car, you think, I've broken my axle. I'm going to get a flat tire. I'm out of luck here. This is, I'm going to have to spend the night. Mm. <laughs> yeah. So uh, there were three women. They were in their early 20s, I guess. They were all teachers mid-twenties, perhaps. And I said, do you want to ride? They said, yeah. And I thought, well, I'll take them. Uh, they said, where are you going? I told them. And so for the next hour and a half, two hours, we drove through the rain talking. They were in the, all in the back seat. <laughs> they, didn't, they didn't risk the front seat with me. But, um, but we were talking. I thought, if I have a problem, they're going to help me. Mm -hmm. They're going to help me. They'll tell me where to go. They'll be able to... Um, uh, find someone to help me they'll know they knew the road very well and they never really explained why they were what they were waiting for i guess they were waiting for anyone to give them a lift but because it was a back road and i was circumventing this blockade um i found them on the back road and they they took me um uh and i dropped them and we talked talked about them their lives what they wanted to do where they wanted to go they were all teachers very admirable um, and, and so it became an episode, you know, that, that just happened the way things happened, uh, by pure accident and pure, and luck, the luck of it. Well, let's, let's, let's go to another episode, uh, one which I asked you to read, uh, before we started the program. And, um, I dislike this slice of your book very much. In fact, I read it multiple times, and it is uh, an homage to D.H. Lawrence and his travels and, and writing and your own experience following figuratively and literally in his footsteps. Uh, and um, if you'd be so kind, that'd be great. For those of you just joining us, you are listening to Watching America. I'm your host, Alan Campbell. And Paul Theroux 
who is one of my favorite writers about travel, a, a rewarding writer about travel. And I'm asking him to so kindly just read this particular passage. So, Paul, take it away. Um, begins intact Oaxaca. Oaxaca is in the south of uh, Mexico. A dead cat lay on the sidewalk. This was in Oaxaca City on the corner of Calle Tinoco y Palacios and a narrow lane with an unreadable name on a broken sign near my posada. The cat was large, not a mere gato, but what Mexicans called a gatazo, a big cat, a flattened half-inch high carcass like a fluffy scrap of carpet, recognizable as a ginger tom, frowning and toothy in death, a bit fly-blown but dried out, stiffened and beginning to mummify. Because the streets were so similar, I used this cat as a landmark, turn left at the dead cat, and always found my way home, never having to humble myself by asking directions. It was another lesson in Mexican idiom, too, because dar el gatazo, to show the big cat, is slang for making yourself look good. Poor, but complex and handsome like so many of its people, and dignified in its poverty, indestructible in its simplicity, Oaxaca was a proud place, too, as for its name to the anti-hero of Under the Volcano, Malcolm Lowry at his most florid and hyperbolic. Oaxaca was like a breaking heart, a sudden peal of stifled bells in a gale, the last syllables of one dying of thirst in the desert. To me, the name was clunky and familiar, because it was my home for the weeks ahead. The city was orderly and joyous without being recklessly licentious like other Mexican cities I'd seen. But in the harmonious symmetry of its old-fashioned layout, one antique street looked to me much like another. It took me a while to see that an old, unremarkable, one-story corner house at number 600 Pino Suarez, which I passed every day on my way to Spanish class at the Instituto Cultural Oaxaca, this house had been occupied by D.H. Lawrence when he lived there with his wife, Frida. On the inner patio, he wrote the final version of The Plume Serpent, his novel, and some of the pieces in Mornings in Mexico. It's worth remembering the way the latter book begins. That is, Mornings in Mexico begins this way. One says Mexico. One means, after all, one little town way south in the Republic. And in this little town one rather crumbly adobe house built around two sides of a garden patio. And of this house, one spot on the deep, shady veranda facing inwards to the trees, where there are an onyx table and three rocking chairs and one little wooden chair, a pot with carnations, and a person with a pen. We talk so grandly in capital letters about mourning in Mexico. All it amounts to is one little individual looking at a bit of sky and trees, then looking down at the page of his exercise book. Thus, Lawrence in Oaxaca, at his best, seeing things as they are. And it was pretty much how I spent my days in my posada in Oaxaca, dibble-dabbling with my pen and my notebook. And the world is so blessed and enriched by you, Paul Thoreau dibbling and dabbling in your notebook. I cannot thank you. thank you enough for being a part of this very rich hour on Watching America. 
Uh, you have um, just made me feel good about life and Mexico and people and writers. Bless you. Thank you so much. Thanks very much, Alan. It was a pleasure to talk to you, and particularly at such length. Take care. Blessings. Thank you. You've been listening to Watching America. Our theme music is provided by Laserlight. Our recording engineer is Todd Washburn, and our producer is Paul Bebo. Our senior producer is Gina Gamboni. Executive producer Chuck Dowd. Our chief of content is Heather Mazzoni, and our CEO Bert Schmidt. I'm watching America's creator and host, Dr. Alan Campbell. I want to thank you for making this program possible by your kind and generous contributions. Previous editions of Watching America are always available. Simply go to your search engine and type NPR space Watching America and you will find our prior shows. Watching America can also be found by verbal command on many devices. The show is also offered on a series of services, from Apple Podcasts to Spotify, amongst others. Thank you for being a part of our continued growth. Until next time, take care and blessings. Watching America is a production of WHRV Public Media in Norfolk, Virginia.